A big welcome to our special guest today on the Power of Genetics podcast is for Dr. Drew Ramsey. And Dr. Ramsey was a speaker at a conference I attended last year, and I was so overwhelmingly impressed by the presentation that I made a note that at the first opportunity, I would reach out to Dr. Ramsey and have him on the Power of Genetics podcast. So a very big welcome. Thank you so much, Yael. It's nice to be with you. And hey, everyone who's listening, thanks thanks for tuning in and spending some time thinking about mental health and food and genetics. Great to be with you. Right. So I love it when when um, I was doing a bit of kind of pre-recording research and I, I came across this description of you, which I think says it all. It may be a great starting point for us. Psychiatrist, author, um, mental health kind of advocate, and the last one, which I absolutely love, pharma. And so when I see a description like that, I mean, immediately, like, this is something different. So if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and kind of like where you are now, what are you doing now? And then once we have a sense of, you know, of, of your current work without going into the details of the actual content, let's go right back because anyone who's a psychiatrist and a farmer and a mental health advocate has been through some changes, some journeys, probably likely some disappointments with what you're encountering that led you to this. So I'm going to hand over to you and I would love you to share with our listeners um, how you land up with this extraordinary description. Well, back in the 1970s, uh, there was a movement in the United States, a back-to-the-land movement of the hippies and the people who wanted to do what what you know many people uh, nowadays are thinking about, uh, grow a little of their own food, uh, build a simple house, dig a pond, swim in it. And so uh, when I was about six years old, my parents moved from uh, New York to very rural Indiana. And really, you know, they're great family stories. I really didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they'd lived in Indiana during college, uh, but, you know, didn't know how to start a chainsaw, didn't know how to, you know, use a tractor. Um, so it, it was a really um, interesting time to see them uh, in, a, in a sort of a set of values on display and, and to grow up in that milieu really quite rurally. Uh, and then uh, over time, to get just, uh, I don't know, interested in all kinds of things. It's probably when I think about that strange description you just read, which I get, you know, that is that is true. I'm all of those things. Uh, you know, I've gotten to go so many fun places in my life. And so after really rural Indiana, I became a, a kind of march uh, educationally. I'm, I'm one of those folks who's really, really just been uh, blessed by specifically Indiana's educational system. Um, being a Midwestern and very conservative state, sometimes people miss that, but uh, and so in some ways, I'm very like proud Hoosier in the sense that I was a farm boy. Uh, our county, Crawford County, is the poorest county in Indiana. And uh, through a, a great local school, uh, then went on to the Indiana Academy of Science, Mathematics, and Humanities, which was a new project that the state legislature of Indiana had launched for the gifted and talented kids of Indiana to come together and get to be together for two years, living in a university dormitory, wow. taking all kinds of specialized classes. And uh, for anybody who's had a you know a hard time fitting in, you, you know when you then find a place where you fit, it 
it's like Find you know it's like home it's, yeah. it's and so this this india this nerd herd we're still all in touch you know it's like uh really just uh having been a kid who had been uh you know struggled with uh, some bullying and some mood stuff it was really an inspiring spot for me from there launched on to uh, Earlham College which again just a, a great institution that supported me supported my curiosity uh, helped me with some academic scholarships I mean just uh, allowed me to be a student athlete uh and, and you know I found a lot of institutions and mentors who let me do a lot of things at once you know I needed to be pre-med and play on the basketball team and be in the play because I liked all that stuff so much and um so I was really supported by great institutions and 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 folks who seemed to appreciate this about me and let me do stuff like be in musicals. And uh, um, I went to Indiana University Medical School. I guess I'm sort of marching you like the way you get to some of those credentials like psychiatrist is a hell of a lot of school. <laughs> and so uh, at age, what was I, 22, I entered medical school. Age 26, I finished and was a physician and uh, moved to New York City for a four-year adult psychiatry training in, in adult psychiatry at Columbia University, which was a, you know, a really incredible shift in part because that's my parents had moved from New York when I was six. So, you know, like, that, I think like yeah. all people, right, you sort of, if you've been in New York or exposed to New York, it's part of your history. You're always kind of looking that way. I wasn't consciously, but I was uh, in any way, but I was thrilled to go there. And then Columbia is really one of the preeminent psychiatric institutions. I'm still in the faculty there, so it sounds biased. Boys like, psychiatry. I mean, you you never, it sounds to me like it wasn't even a question. You were going to do psychiatry or. Well, or I'm, I'm, a, I'm like an almost 50 year old psychiatrist now. So it probably does sound like that because I, you know. I like spend thousands and thousands of hours being a psychiatrist at this point. I think I was like a lot of phases of my life, quite confused. I think I didn't have uh, probably as much kind of clarity about a set of maybe core values or even like spiritual values, I would say, or maybe clarity about who I was uh, uh, that, you know, now as I've lived a lot of my life is much more clear. Um, <clears throat> in terms of specialties, I really struggled with wanting to do everything I love the idea of family practice, right? I could live here a baby. I could like assist in your surgery. I like know ever. I like do whatever. And I thought that was such a great specialty. I thought OBGYN was an amazing specialty. I, I felt like I really shouldn't do it because I was a man. I didn't have any of the hardware and it just feels like you kind of don't get it on some level. Uh, no offense to my male OBGYN colleagues, but I thought that mix of surgical, all the mental health stuff, and then continuity of care, right? This idea that you could know uh, uh, your your patients, the women you treat for you know their whole lives, that was just intriguing to me. I thought you'd learn so much. And then uh, during medical school, I would often, you know, the, I mean, I wasn't great at a lot of stuff, but I, I like listening to people and engaging with the patient. I got a lot of pleasure in advocating for patients. I got in a little trouble. I had a I was working on the children's, uh, the pediatric cancer ward. And one of my patients, the dad went down with appendicitis, like as the kids in the middle of chemo. And I was like, what was I like 20, 24 year old, full of gusto, young medical student. And I like walked him over to the ER and I was so upset when the surgical team didn't see him. They went to lunch first. I ended up getting in trouble because I like kind of made a stand. I couldn't believe that these folks like walked in anyway. Um, 
but back to sort of how do you get all the stars? I, I think being interested in a lot of things, I think the farming, I mean, farmer is a little bit, I do my best and I lived with my folks and grew up on a farm. We moved back there and for about four or five years was really trying to do my best to farm more. And it makes you mostly respect farmers, real farmers, <clears throat> whether, excuse me, people have on dish on like conventional farmers or people who, you know, farm soy, soy and corn and just, you know, after you've spent any amount of time trying to grow anything and sell it, you just have immense respect for anyone who's trying to do agriculture. But I also got really inspired by a lot of regenerative farmers, people who are uh, um, clay bottom farms up in Northern Indiana, just an inc incredible um, farmers. The name is escaping me, but uh, um, uh, learning about how you grow stuff is really also at the core of psychiatry. And so, you know, in some ways those things I think are quite interrelated in the sense that, you know, I've always been a farm boy and really interested in big nature, interested in the power of nature. Um, I've, I've always really been interested in connection and, and growing stuff. And then as a physician, uh, you know, I, I think it took me a lot of years to kind of find my path in the sense that there's a lot about traditional psychiatry that, that, um, as I went into it, you know, I had a lot to learn about, um, but didn't exactly feel healthy to me. Um, and I think that's still some of it's still the case. <laughs> and at the same time, it's really, it's nice to be part of a, uh, a group that always thinks about things that are really important to me, like self-awareness and empathy and mood and individuality and patient autonomy and things that psychiatry just, we just do a really good job of in general, at least uh, we try to. But the one thing that isn't part of mainstream psychiatry is nutrition. Yeah, no, it wasn't when I when I joined up, uh, and I was a, like a weirdo coming out of medical school. So Indiana is very like meat and potatoes like yeah. place, and so I was a like vegetarian, <laughs> low fat vegetarian back then, and like and like you know adamant that it was like the best for heart health. And I was an athlete and, and up until the end of residency, I was fully veggie and, and proud, loud and proud veggie. And uh, so, you know, I'd always been interested in nutrition. That part was inspired by my uncle. I had an uncle who is a psychiatrist and he uh, has always been very interested in nutrition. Robert Wise really inspired me in terms of uh, just a commitment to help health. I'm just uh, as a young man, a teenager, uh, he just was, a you know, a dad who was active and, uh, working out a lot and had a group of guys every Sunday where they get together in the morning early and, you know, have a good cup of coffee and then, you know, go out on a 40 mile bike ride along the lake in Chicago. And so I, you know, I had influences, I think around food and activity, uh, and, and certainly growing food from, from my folks that, you know, were very strong developmental influences that are still clearly with me and are really important to me. We, we recently moved to Wyoming and I like, it was, it was like, a I don't know, it's been a very, it was a very strange thing to move away from the farm again after uh, when I originally moved, I was what, 15. And so then I guess I was 40, what, 46 or so when we moved away this time. And, uh, but we, we were in Wyoming and I had like, I had this shed that I like had to turn into a greenhouse Plus you and, did. Yeah. and, and, and it's still, I still, I should like, I should pick up my computer and walk in and, and there's still uh so I grew a bunch of tomatoes, of course, being from Indiana, 
but had a bunch of cherry tomatoes. And what's been fascinating is they're still on the vine. It's February 16th right now. So we've had a Wyoming winter, which has gone down to negative 35. Wow. This little dinky greenhouse, a little dinky heater in there. And I still have fresh tomatoes. So, and, but more than any of the food it produces, I mean, the guy really got food. I'd love to go out there and see this cabbage plant that's like really a nice specimen of a cabbage plant. And it, there's just, I don't know, it's just, uh, it sort of entertains me a little bit like a pet. You know, with those, some of the plants. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think there's some part of me that's a little off where I don't sort of separate plant and animal that much. You know, there's a way that like when, when people, uh, think about, uh, for example, veganism for for ethical values of, you know, destroying a life form. You know, there, there's some way that, yeah, I feel a lot of spiritual resonance with the plants. It feels, you know, I, I'm very aware when I'm ripping a broccoli plant or cutting kale. You know, that like, like that's that whole organism's existence. So that takes the word nutritional psychiatry to a whole new level. I have to think about nutritional psychiatry. So you, yeah, psychiatry didn't value food. This is like 2004. I'm interested in the stuff. Science starts coming out about it. I get obsessed with kind of asking all of my patients about what they eat. I partner up with a good friend, Tyler Graham, and I have this idea for a book title, The Happiness Diet, because I just got this question like, oh, like my job is to help people find happiness, build happy lives, understand themselves. Like, what should they eat? Everybody else is busy telling people what to eat. Like, why don't we? And and part of the reason is because psychiatry is very neutral, right? Like, you come to me and like, should I get divorced? It's not. I'm like, yeah. Let me. I think like probably. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, trying to like kind of eke out. Like, yeah. tell me about. Tell me about what's going on, right? And 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 the idea of structuring of helping someone with their mind reach, you know, what uh, is optimal for them. And so. In some ways, you can really engage in the same process with food, right? What you and I would eat to optimally serve our mental health, there'd be related nutrients, there'd be related food categories, but we could eat very different styles of diet and still be serving our mental health. And and what I eat for my mental health, it might not do it for you. And so it, in a lot of ways, uh, nutritional psychiatry is, is confronting two things. It's confronting there's been no attention to mental health in the nutrition world you know everyone loves to point that like doctors don't teach mental health or don't teach get taught nutrition it's like okay nobody else gets taught mental health i mean some folks right the mental health professionals but you know when it comes to food there's been an obsession with heart disease and weight loss and those are you know i appreciate the interest in those but really what is special about you and everyone listening and everyone on this planet are their human brains those are the most interesting cells, right? What's not interesting about you, no offense, is your belly or your waistline or your visceral fats. Like, I mean, it's like tissue, but like whatever. Like, but what's super interesting about you are the 90 billion neurons you have and how they connect. And there's some things about us that are all the same. And and being a psychiatrist, I've really gotten a front seat at the little ways, the little wonderful ways that we're all different. And, and those two things are like very captivating as you see them, right? There's something reassuring as you sit with people and you hear about the need for connection and love and empowerment and actualization and, and good sleep. And that's just kind of, wow, I, it, uh, we need that. And, and then also those ways you hear this really specific thing 
like I'm getting to work with a number of individuals who are, are uh, I wouldn't say even say later in their life, they're in their seventies, but some of them are uh, just like more vibrant and alive than ever. I've, I've known some of them for 20 years. And one of my patients somehow came up the Tetons and she stopped I mean, like the, like the whole zoom room, like everything stopped. She looked at me right and she said, you know, I don't know if I had a past life, but I think I did. And I'm pretty sure I was a Teton. And you have a, a, a incredibly brilliant artistic woman who's, you know, approaching 80, tell you that it just, it's like, wow, what is that? So, uh, so there isn't a lot of mental health and nutrition and there isn't a lot of food in medicine or in psychiatry. And so it's a great point. And, and I, I, I started with the happiness diet of just that simple question. What would you eat? How would you categorize it? From there, I got obsessed with kale, but I, I think I just got obsessed with when there is a trend like kale, like, can I make something mental health about that and get people talking about mental health? And and so I published 50 Shades of Kale, Shades of kale and that was like a hit, you know, I got teased at every American Psychiatric Association meeting for like three years. I get called Dr. Kale by everybody. It was hard. It was tough years. Every place you go when you write a kale cookbook, let me tell you, if, for some reason, people only read the salad recipe because I went... I, I got a kale salad literally every place I went where people were like, kale will destroy your health. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm almost 50. I look like my health is destroyed because I ate kale every day for years. Because you show up and people are like, oh my gosh, Dr. Reggie, here's a kale salad. And you can't yeah. be like, you can't say no. no. Kale, I'm and I like a kale salad. I was really interesting to see all the different things that people did. Yeah. So in terms of nutritional psychiatry, the important thing, the data started coming out with the data then I've really been able to be more clear and secure in my own opinion. And then in talking to more and more patients about food, understand the limits of nutritional psychiatry and where it fits into my practice. And I don't have to talk to you about nutrition. Uh, lots of my colleagues don't and still help people with their mental health. But just like when we integrate and we use these different areas that affect mental health, we have a more powerful effect. Like, you know, if you look at depression, Meds work for about half, 60% of people. Psychotherapy works for about the same, right? You put them together, about 80% of people get better. Wow, that's kind of interesting. So what if you throw food in there and and say, wow, I take you from eating, you know, let's say the worst for your mental health, highly processed foods, lot, you know, what everyone knows, lots of sugars, empty that's cards, true. highly processed yeah. foods, right? We've all we've all heard the same story, sugar, sugar, sugar. And uh and and swap that out, help you swap that out for a more traditional style diet. All the data and studies around the Mediterranean style diet. And you know, that's great if you're white and your family's from Italy, right? Uh, and it, it's great if you're from Morocco, that doesn't get included in there from Turkey, right? Cause you, but what a Mediterranean style diet represents is a couple of things, you know, from compared to the American diet, more plants, but a lot of more traditional home cooked food, probably a lot more sitting down and eating together. And then the lifestyle. Right? I love that word. The sharing of food together as as important as the food sometimes itself. It, it is, you know, it's it's how it's, it's how I, I kind of keep. I do a lot of male mental health work, and in some ways, it's how I keep track of uh, men's mental health, especially when they're dads. Is how many dinners they eat with their kids, how many dinners they cook with their kids. It's just sort of a simple metric of you know when we're there sitting together, it slows us down. Um. But yeah, nutritional psychiatry became a thing. So that's really been wonderful. I mean, I was there a few of us. Uh, I would say there's a Dr. Umanadu at Harvard, who's the only, uh, only psychiatrist with the nutritional psychiatry like title. 
Um, there's me, Chris Palmer, also at Harvard, a big advocate of the ketogenic diet. Um, there's a, a couple other folks, Stanford, Dr. Desai at Stanford, Dr. Yadis, uh, Emily Deans. But, you know, in terms of psychiatrists interested in this stuff, it's hard to, you know, uh, uh, in terms of clinical practice, not a lot of us. So it's been really exciting to see that evolve. The International Society for Nutrition, Psychiatry, and Research emerged. And it was really helped, uh, exciting to be one of the founding members of that group. And now we have a lot of data. Now there are five clinical trials showing that utilizing a more traditional style diet is effective in helping patients who have clinical depression if you add it on to treatment as usual, i.e. if you've got depression or you're struggling with your mental health, looking at your plate, looking at the end of your fork, looking at your grocery cart, it can be a tool for you. And I think a lot of people with mental health, you know, all of us, when you're suffering with mental health, people are like, well, you know, why is everyone looking for a silver bullet? It's like, well, because mental health problems suck. You know, it's like if you're feeling depressed and anxious and you can't sleep and you're having thoughts of suicide, it's like you want a silver bullet. You want to be better right away. And, and for some people, food it can help quite quickly, but I think we can all agree that the day in, day out, keeping your mental health afloat, having proper nutrition for your mental health and your neurons is, is really straightforward and makes sense to all of us. Yeah. I mean, I and, guess that's why I'm smiling is I'm thinking, I'm sitting, I'm thinking, do we really need like five clinical trials to tell us that good nutrition contributes to mental health i mean it's extraordinary that you know you know i think the, the question in there in is that that it's so intuitive like it's it's so intuitive i think i think we do need randomized trials in medicine but i think the better or the you know the question that i feel inspired by this is can the mental health care system respond to evidence that's true and and help people with this you know because there's a way that a lot of medicine has given up on people's ability to uh, do the right thing with food, mm-hmm. um, we respond to we respond to a lot of marketing, right? We all act out with a lot of food. We we we're guilty. We carb crave. We eat too much dark chocolate and cake and ice cream. Uh, we punish ourselves in all kinds of ways, and that's where again nutritional psychiatry really asks. In, in uh, my most recent book. I'm going to say the the most of all, right? So this is my fourth the fourth book, Eat to Beat Depression and and Anxiety. And so I've been chewing on this idea for now about 15 years, but also how do you translate it into a book? So the book's filled with illustrations, with recipes, with a six-week plan. And and the the ideas are are one to help people upgrade their knowledge a little bit. If you're thinking about psychiatry and you know serotonin and Prozac and all that, like that, that I still like all that stuff, but we have a lot of new concepts like inflammation and neuroplasticity in the microbiome that should be in your mind when you're thinking about your mental health, right? Because if they're not, you're not using the latest science and you're not using tools that are in your grocery store, right? Once you hear that, hey, um, people who get depressed have different organisms living in their gut than people who don't. It's like, ah, huh. Yeah. It's like, what can you do about that? And then, uh, you know, well, you can start eating fermented foods. You know, when you hear that, uh, you know, women who are perimenopausal, who eat lower glycemic foods, i.e. eating lots and lots of delicious carbohydrates as caramelized vegetables, broccoli and cauliflower, yum, yum, yum. It's so good. Some garlic and olive oil, right? That that is awesome for your mental health while eating like, I don't know, cake, breakfast cereals, low-fat yogurt, stuff with lots of sugar, high glycemic index foods. 
that's going to increase your risk of depression. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the one thing I have to say, um, just, just to add in, is that um, um, since I heard you speak, like I've followed obviously your books and your social media. And I think one of, first of all, you're a funny guy. Like, oh, thank you. That's so, so that doesn't happen so much when I go to a conference that I get to, to like see sense of humor coming through a presentation. And I think in your social media and the way that you communicate these important concepts around mental health and nutrition, you bring a great deal of humor. And that's, I think is, is a, a great quality and we don't have enough of that. But the other thing that I think is quite unique about your work is the ability to communicate to the end user, to the public, to the to the individual. Because when you're kind of deep in the academia of challenging new paradigms, bringing nutrition into the work of psychiatry, teaching in academic institutions, even being in private practice, it's not always that easy to, to then step into this kind of consumer world where you can now bring conversations. And I think that's something that you that you've really done well I mean you're 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 and this is not just about me like praising you praising you but it really stands out that your social media is incredibly engaging and humorous and kind of fun and it's quite a lot for most people to be able to straddle those worlds right from kind of academic clinical trials through to that kind of humorous light entertainment which you've managed to achieve and I guess my question is how intentional has that been for you or is that just who you are like am I like like do I like plan out do I like plan out my jokes (laughs) um I uh I think it's definitely um I I don't know that I said deaf. I I've not thank you for that by the way. I hope my children someday hear what uh this lovely woman said about your father because that uh I have always enjoyed making people laugh. I think part of being in mental health and and part of um uh, I'm a little dramatic I guess in the sense that for me a lot of my uh life is caught in between like uproarious laughter at how I don't know, like wildly wonderful and strange human life and love is and all that stuff and getting like way, way down deep and serious in the deep end of the pool about like suicide, suicide prevention and screening people about suicide. And, you know, humor, psychiatrists and psychologists tell us is our healthiest defense that when we're uncomfortable, we make jokes. So I guess if there's one thing that I'm intentional about, it's trying not to have my humor come from a defensive place that I'm I'm scared of something or um, I don't want to talk about something or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making fun of something because I'm struggling with it myself. I, I hope my humor doesn't come from a defensive place. I find mental health is such a serious and hard topic and it can seem so uh, confusing and frightening to people. And that I really want mental health and myself as an ambassador of mental health, uh, I want it to feel different now because our system and our attitudes about mental health have not been serving us. They've been Um, failing us. And so something has to be different. And one of the things that has to be different is we have to have both deep reverence for the sacredness and the severity and, and the, uh, of this work. 
and how hard it is and how it's uh, time consuming and it takes special people with special nervous systems who can handle it to do it. And it takes brave patients. It takes organizations that support it. It takes radical changes in how we compensate and think about mental health services. But, um, you know, I want a different mental health system. And, and I'm lucky. I've gotten lots of good mental health care. I've had lots and lots of psychotherapy. Maybe that's why, you know, no, it wasn't intentional, but you know what? I really worked hard to take care of my mental health because I think being creative and uh, and helping people smile more and helping people love more, I, I, like that is the best feeling and the greatest privilege. And, and all of us as humans have that capacity. It's not just me because of my training or whatever, or all the therapy that I've had. You know, it's it's something that all of us have and all of us connect to it. It's why, you know, people say, are you feeling down? What are some things you can do right away? It's like open a door for someone, look someone in the eye and say, hello, just do something for someone else. And yeah. you feel it a little bit. So I'm Thank going you. to, um, I'm going to bring genetics in now because this is supposed to be part of genetics podcast. And one of the amazing things um, that I've learned um, over the last couple of years around genetics is first of all that the the amount that the genes that we have and the kind of variability that we inherit from our parents um there's a commonality that runs through mental health that doesn't isn't defined by one diagnosis and another that for some mm -hmm. of us it is harder. It's harder to manage our neurotransmitters, our dopamine, our serotonin. And it doesn't matter if it manifests as OCD or ADHD or depression, anxiety. There's a genetic kind of underpinning. But one of the beautiful things that I did also come across, I was, I was studying gene expression. And we look at all these amazing things that switch on and switch off genes. And of course, nutrition is one of the most powerful um, things we can do that we can switch on and switch off genes. And when we can do that, I always say that is when food becomes medicine, we can really heal ourselves. Um, and so my training has always come out of nutrition and genetics, nutrition, and genetics. And then recently I was preparing a talk around um, nutritional psychiatry and genetics. And I discovered the work around how connection and social interaction changes gene expression. So when you look someone in the eye, open a door for them, give someone a hug, smile at someone, smile yourself, it's not just happening at a kind of social level. It's actually happening at a molecular level in that those actions of connection actually switch on genes. They drive gene expression. And the same way that mood can change gene expression, the acts of connection that you're mentioning, whether it's humor, it's smiling, it's touching someone's arm, it's shaking their hand, it's giving them a hug, actually change gene expression. And for me, that is, it was a real aha moment coming out of the world where I only thought of nutrition and supplements and exercises changing mm -hmm. gene expression and realizing how important, and I think that's where we're sitting in this epidemic for, of the world of mental health is and a large part of it is loneliness and disconnection post COVID. And, and I thought it was a, amazing to think that just offering that connection to someone can actually change the way their genes behave. It's, it's wonderful uh, to think about, you know, I see this often in the trauma world where, where the no, notion of how trauma 
ha has multi-generational effects through the epigenome and and it, it's uh and i had a patient frame it to me recently she said well does that mean that our work here is changing my genetics so I won't pass the trauma on to my kid or are my genes always going to be damaged by the trauma? And it's such a, you know, I don't know, it just really struck me as, you know, as we talk about genetics where mental health is one of those things where there haven't been clear genetic markers. There have been signals. There are definitely genes, and 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 you can get a score these days looking at genetic-wide association studies and the kind of the correlations of certain genes with depression. So you know there is what's called a polygenic risk score that's being developed, and 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 thinking about some of the genetics underpinning depression. For example, there are multiple variations of like the BDNF gene or serotonin receptor genes where little, you know, tweaks in your genetic code lead to little shifts in functions. The one that's kind of made the most headlines was the MTHFR gene. But, you know, what's been very interesting is if you look at the data between the MTHFR gene, which is, it's, you know, it's supposed so to- not that powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just vital. You know, you've got to have a good version to make folate into L-methylfolate. And if not, you should take L-methylfolate. You know, it's kind of the tragic story of mental health over and over and over again, is you get a little bit of science, you get a lot of hype, and then someone, you know, and, and the pharmaceutical companies get in trouble, but in this case, it's actually, you know, a supplement manufacturer, you know, they profit hundreds of millions of dollars doing something that by and large doesn't really help people in the evidence. And, and you know, it's where I think mental health patients and family who's been struggled with mental health problems, especially if you haven't had any solutions that have been found, you know, people I think are really frustrated, like they never have been before the community. I'm in now, you know, is really looking for creative solutions. I think mental health for the first time ever, it's a real priority. You know, every community, so. right? the kids are struggling in a way that is different. Like it's this post pandemic, uh, real, just uh, a morass of, at least that's what people are describing. You know, there's also a way that we're just now kind of emerging from something. So, but in terms of genetics, yeah, my, my, my sense is um, there's been a lot of hype thus far in mental health. But if you, you know, think that uh, what we mostly do is, is uh, not based right now on genetics and genetic testing and mental health. So we'll see what happens. And, you know, you have a really great, solution which is really good wholesome healthy eating as as something that everyone can do you know that we can start with so that's why you know I think your work is so valuable it's kind of it's it's you don't need to go this you know fancy functional testing it's something that everyone can do and then, so I guess I'm going to finish off we'll tie it up now but with one last question and I you know you've obviously got a lot of degrees, you've done a lot of work, you've done a lot of your own investigation to find um, a way to help and a way to impact people's lives, to make them a little bit better, to give them some happiness. What is the advice that you would give to someone starting out, whether they're starting out in medicine or in nutrition or in, you know, chiropractic, in whatever it is, and, and they're starting out and they're listening and they're going, wow, you know, you, you're breaking kind of down barriers, you're creating a new paradigm, you're writing books, you're speaking, you're educating. 
what is the advice that you would given to that starting out doctor or dietitian, whatever they may be? Well, I think that um, it's important to remember that good things take a long time. And it's important to keep learning and to pay attention to the individual lessons that the universe is offering up to you. Like when my first book came out, I noticed I was spending a lot of hours really agitated, writing long comments back to people who are angry at me on the internet. And that was really bad for my mental health. So I don't do that anymore. Maybe that's negligent, but I don't think taking care of my mental health is ever negligent. Uh, I think um, lear learn from painful things uh, that we all have lessons we have to learn and they hurt. Um, that's a good one. I'd say a, a big lesson that, that, you know, maybe is behind all this is recover and pay attention to your trauma. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's a word that some people don't like, like people don't like the word trigger, but spending a lot of time in mental health, I, I've heard about a lot of different traumas. I've heard the types of traumas that, you know, often don't get appreciated being, uh, ignored by a parent or having one sibling get a you know more food than the other or um, simply being awkward when you're a teen and just having just that just making high school miserable in the way that sticks with you even once you're a super powerful CEO and so I think understanding your personal uh, developmental narrative and the inner workings of yourself as an organism and how you psychologically work I think in terms of my own, let's call it, uh, you know, and I appreciate your framing it as success. I think that that has to be noted. You know, it's sort of, I think, behind a lot of people who uh, um, accomplish things, you know, often there are coaches, therapists, loved ones, there's a lot of conversations. And so I think that would be my advice is don't, uh, don't, don't, don't mistake what you might appear as like a mountain of stuff I've done. For, for anything other than taking steps, climbing my mountain. And you should feel a lot of encouragement if you feel it inside of you. That's the other thing. If you're listening and you feel it inside of you, that's good. I always did too. And if you just keep peeking one step after the other, I hope you get to experience what I'm getting to experience sitting in a podcast like this, hearing about ideas you've had and worked on and that they're resonating with people and that, that hopefully they're helping people change their lives. That, that, that's a really wonderful feeling. So uh, if you got a sense you've got some of that to offer, good. Welcome to the club. Uh, I'll see you on the mountain. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing next. So, uh, you know, it's uh, there's always a step ahead of you. Well, could not have said it better. Thank you very much, Dr. Ramsey, for joining me today. Thank you for sharing your story. I look forward to continuing following your work, seeing more books come out, um, be watching out for the cabbage. And well, thank you. I'll go, I'll go post a picture of the cabbage. Thanks for telling me I was, I'm funny and uh, I appreciate that. I haven't heard it like that before. I um, bring humor to the table. So thank I'll, you. I'll thank you. I, uh, I look forward to uh, our next conversation and thanks so much for having me on. Well, thank you.